I just, I, I always tell my staff that when you open champagne, it should sound like a sophisticated woman farting. <laughs> <laughs> that's, our, that's the way I train. <laughs> Welcome to the first episode of Bring Your Own. I'm Derek Morrison. In each episode, we'll gather a small group of wine lovers, each bringing their own perspectives, experience, and a special bottle of wine from their own cellar to share. For our first episode, we've arranged a great panel of champagne lovers to chat about Grower Champagne and share their stories and insights about these wines and the people behind them. Grower Champagnes are produced by the same estate that owns the vineyards where the grapes are grown. In contrast, large champagne houses buy most of their grapes from many different growers and work to blend their wines to achieve the same taste year after year. Both groups are important to the region, but hopefully this episode will shed light on what is so exciting about grower champagnes in the market today. We are really excited to have a great group of champagne lovers. Sandia Chang, owner of Bubble Dogs in central London, Peter Crawford, one of Europe's most passionate champagne collectors, and David Clausen, owner of The Remedy Wine Bar. The good people at Wilton's in Mayfair were kind enough to host us in their beautiful private dining room. Find them online at www.wiltons.co.uk. Follow us on social media at BYO Podcast and share this episode for the chance to win some great prizes. The video version is available on YouTube and subscribe to the podcast to make sure you catch all future episodes. So why don't we why don't we start off by going around the table a little bit and just uh, introducing each other and if uh, saying a little bit about uh, where you're from, what you do. You're looking at me, so I presume I should start. <laughs> <laughs> so my name is David, and I own a little wine bar called The Remedy. Um, we've been open a few years now. Um, we're not champagne specialists per se, but um, you know we have a I think a nice little interesting list. Uh, we tend to do a lot of different kind of wines, a lot of natural wines, but we're not really dogmatic either. Um, and I guess I got into wine, well, obviously, probably like a lot of us, by drinking a lot of it. Um, and yeah, I had a prior life, which, uh, you know, maybe over four or five bottles of champagne I might discuss, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm much happier in my current life. And, you know, that obviously revolves a lot around wine. Sandia. Yes. Well, I think I kind of know everybody here, but uh, I'm Sandia. I own a champagne and hot dog bar called Bubble Dogs. So we specialize in grower champagne, which um, when I first opened the restaurant was kind of a, a hard feat uh, to overcome, where everybody in London was drinking, you know, Paul Roger's and Vuclicots and, and whatnot. And people were just like, what do you sell? Um, but yeah, it's been good and it's been great. And I think um, with, uh, especially David's just down the street from us, with people like, like him, it's really helping the whole entire culture of wine drinkers. Um, in London, moving forward, you know. When did you open Bubble Dogs? Uh, 2012. Yeah, I mean, my whole career. Incredible. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's five years ago. It's pretty weird. It's crazy. <laughs> that means it's like yesterday, right? Yeah, yeah I, I know. But well, sometimes it feels like forever. <laughs> <laughs> the life of a restaurant owner. I, I know that feeling. You know what? I'm only three years in. But uh, mm -hmm. I've always been in the restaurant business. Uh, I went to school to study for restaurant. Uh, management, went to culinary school because I thought I wanted to be a chef and thought that was a stupid idea. And then I uh, just got into wines and loved it ever since. I'm Peter. I do not work in the wine trade at all. Um, I am a physiotherapist by, by trade. Um, but I've always, I say always, I, I've loved champagne from, from first going to uni. Uh, and I got into it, I was working in Nobbins uh, back in 99, just when the the wine world was starting to have its explosion in terms of pricing. Um, and I was asked to look after a section. And uh, the section I had to look after was, was champagne. And, uh, and I remember 
a, a friend who hopefully will uh, will grace this table at some point. Richard Bray came round and uh, and he brought a bottle of '88 Polaroja, and I'd never had a champagne like that before. And it was just one of those moments where I was just, this is incredible. Um, and it seems so bizarre because it was it's only what was it 11 years old at that point, and and now you know my experience now. Of, what I classify as old champagne is, is is way beyond that, but it's it was just such a an amazing experience to get that little bit of little bit of aging to see what champagne can do and what uh, what you get on the palate, um, and I've just been in love ever since. So. Yeah, I had a similar experience with an '88 Krug. Oof. That was uh, yeah. yeah, I mean it was just like yeah, you know, all of a sudden like it's, uh, it's such a great vintage. You know? it's it's like, such what's going on vintage. here? You know, this is not yeah. what I normally drink. No, <laughs> 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 and unfortunately, I don't drink that every day, but you know. Every uh, once in a while. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's, it's really the the for me the great vintage of the last fifty or so years. I'm um, I'm Derek Morrison. I uh, work with a good wine shop in. Uh, we have two retail shops in uh, West London, one in Kew Gardens and one in Chiswick. Um, I'm originally from Saskatchewan, Canada, so it's uh, a career in wine kind of forced me abroad pretty quickly. But uh, I actually I got into wine. I originally moved to Italy to make cheese. Um, and in, in Umbria, and it was, I moved to Italy to write a book and make cheese and cook, and I just ended up falling in love with wine after spending some time with some winemakers in, uh, in Umbria and Montefalco, and for me that kind of just set me off down the rabbit hole. And um, I ended up coming to London uh, so I could maintain kind of access to the European wines. And um, Italy is where I kind of had my champagne epiphanies, where it was I didn't I didn't know what grower champagne was uh, when I moved to. To be honest, I didn't really know much about Italian wine. Um, but uh, I always joke with people that the only thing Italians can agree upon when it comes to wine is champagne. Uh, you know, no matter what region you go to in Italy, you can find a phenomenal champagne list. And um, one of my sommelier teachers from when I when I went to uh, culinary school in in, in Piemonte. Had a great. Uh, he was fascinated with the wines of Salas and and um, drinking with winemakers in Barolo. I got to drink a lot of great um, wines. So it was where I met the wines from Francis Boulard, which ended up uh, um, becoming one of my favorite Le Rachets. Uh, one of my it was one of my it was one of my wedding wines, uh, one of my wedding champagnes uh, as well. But uh, um, yeah, so that I moved to the UK to maintain access to the wines of Europe. I think it was crazy though. Actually, I mean, I've been to Piedmont several times, and yeah, I mean, some of the best wine lists I've seen. Sorry, champagne lists I've seen. Are yeah. PR and yeah. What's Incredible. going on here? Because winemakers love to drink champagne. Yeah. Hey, this is my like restaurant thing kicking in. I don't like seeing empty glasses. Yeah. <laughs> so everybody brought a bottle of wine tonight to contribute. That hopefully means a little bit of something or um, to yourselves, or you've got hopefully some uh, um, insights as to why that bottle that you chose tonight. That's what I'm curious to know. Um, so let's start with Sandia. See what you've what you've. So got. I picked uh, I picked Marie Corton, which is. Um, a female wine producer in Champagne. <clears throat> I wanted to showcase a female producer because there's very few around, and also the particular area that it comes from. I just I I always tell my staff that when you open Champagne, it should sound like a sophisticated woman farting. <laughs> that's our, that's the way I train. <laughs> I really enjoy this area because because uh, not a lot of people know it's from the O, so south of Champagne, actually closer to Chablis than it is to, um, to Champagne itself. But yeah, this is uh, Congredance, is her 100% Pinot Noir that is no sulfur added. This is a 2012 vintage. Um, I remember the first time I had this, I was just like, it smells like Cinnamon Toast Crunch. So, Sandy, so I wanna ask you a bit about, so Bubble Dogs, so five years ago, I mean, it was, it was that's pretty bold to go full Exclusively grower champagnes yeah. in 2012. It was. Um, what was 
Like, what was the what was, what the was motivation? I thinking? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah <laughs> what basically. Thinking? Well, I was just um, the previous place I worked at was Noma before I came to the UK, and it was a revelation to see their wine list because they wrote their wine list based on what they were serving in the restaurant. So they had no New World wines, they had no Bordeaux, no Spanish reds. Everything was just written for their food. And I was like, that's amazing. You know, for, for a restaurant to be so ballsy and be like, I don't care what our guest wants, I'm representing our restaurant and writing a list just for our restaurant. And I thought that was amazing. So it was there where I learned all about the grower producers. Um, we had an amazing list. I, I still think to this day, Noma probably has the best grower champagne list. They just have more access in Scandinavia. And so I think that's where, that's, all, that's where all the allocation goes. I know, so not fair. Everything was <laughs> in Denmark. Copenhagen. Yeah. yeah. Or, or Japan. <laughs> and then Italy. <laughs> but yeah, but I wanted to, um, I came back here and I was missing, I was missing that. I was missing drinking Rose Champagnes. <coughs> and I was also missing the New York City vibe where things didn't have to be formal. Even a champagne bar shouldn't have to be formal. So I thought, well, why not like, create something that's super cool and relaxed, and, but you're drinking amazing champagne. And yeah. I, I personally love champagne with like French fries and and charcuterie. Yeah. Yes. I mean, but that's, I think one of the greatest food pairings is like, you know, great, great wine with like simple but good food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. that's what, that's how we all normally live. Everybody normally lives yeah. like that. Yeah. Nobody has like well. trolleys of caviar in their house when they pop up and bottle of champagne. Cue the oysters. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> please, please, somebody do it. But yeah, that was the whole idea is to create a place where people can actually feel comfortable coming into a champagne bar to drink champagne and not feel that sort of like stuffiness of, you know, the, I was going to say velvet couches, but we're sort of <laughs> sitting on velvet couches. <laughs> and, you know, and like crystal chandeliers and whatnot. Well, were there any other places doing, uh, like restaurants doing much gore champagne back then? I'm trying to, I can't remember. No, I think uh, texture had a little bit. But I remember starting out working with suppliers like Vine Trail, and they had very, very little. Um, they had a great portfolio, but their stock was so little. They were running out. I was. I had for some crazy idea. I opened uh, the restaurant with Benoit Lahaye's rosé by the glass, and like literally two months later, they're like, "Sorry, we don't have any more." Sold it all, darn it. Yeah, it was. I just and it was very hard to come by. So is that how you started getting into uh, buying direct? I mean, did you have relationships with some of these producers already, or were you like, no, "I need no. to, I need to lock down supply," and so, it was kind of more um, of a necessity predicated? It was a little bit of both. It was um, my, I mean, the, one of the reasons why I brought Marie Quartan because I, I never been to Champagne until I, a month before I opened the restaurant. I've never actually stepped foot in Champagne. So I took a trip there and, and Marie Quartan was one of the first producers so I went opened, to visit. Sorry, so you opened a Champagne bar and you'd never been to Champagne? No, mm-mm. I did, because so cool. I did a month before. Yeah, a month before, yeah. <laughs> good homework. <laughs> That's good. But I met a lot of producers while I was working, and I was of quite course, fortunate yeah, yeah. to work at Per Se, too, in New York, where we had access to a lot of um, producers and wines. Um, but yeah, when I met her, and I was like, wow, this is completely different than what I thought champagne would be. You know, I thought everybody would be in suits and, you know, great huge mansions. And this little lady comes out with, like, the most gnarliest, like, farmer's hands I've ever seen. <laughs> and I was just like, man, she is cool. That's so cool. And, and she's just walking around her vineyard picking up weeds and, you know, making me smell her dandelion flowers that are growing. And it's just, it was just the most amazing experience. And, yeah, and, and from then on, every year I used to go back three or four times and and just keeping up relationships. And that's how the direct um, 
became. How about. many people do you buy direct from? Um, about eight of them now. Okay, wow. Yeah. It definitely so, helps supply probably. Supply allocation. Yeah, allocation is much better if I buy direct. Because yeah. then I get my own private allocation, which is probably a lot of times the same as the whole of England's allocation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to hear this. <laughs> what did you expect? Did you expect more people to come for the champagne? Or is it kind of the idea? Um, how did you convert champ a hot dog? How do you convert hot dog lovers into grower fanatics, or are they just kind of oblivious to the fact that, of what they're supporting? Well, um, it's um, it? I the restaurant itself lends to forcing people to drink the champagne because there's nothing yeah, else right. on the list. You know, there's no other thing you can. Well, there's a couple beers and cocktails, but but that's it. So you're sort of forcing them to try, but because hot dogs are just so friendly, they're like the most friendly food. You know. People are never intimidated by a hot dog. Yeah, but that's what I love. Champagne is like the most vulnerable, volatile, kind of humble wine region in many ways, from the vigneron perspective. In terms of, there's no like more difficult place really to grow grapes. I mean, so I think there's a real charm and kind of an enchanting thing about that yeah. from the growers. And they're and they're they're very good at presenting that. The grow the, the growers this is fantastic. You rock up on the door. They're drinking tea with their wife. Or, or husband or whatever, mm -hmm. and and it's just this this little farmer, and and they're they're tending to their grapes, and it's usually I can't remember how, how many hectares. Two point five. Yeah, I mean, yeah, two and a half hectares. It's just tiny. Yeah. Tiny, and they're they're trying things out. You say this is this is sans souffre. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're trying things out. This incredibly volatile. You know, this is this is this is testy yeah. stuff to do. Uh, you know, most most producers in most countries would just go not touch it with a barge pole. And then, then they, she's got two and a half hectares, and she's going, oh, I'll tell you what, let's just, let's just, let's just roll the dice on this. No, actually, that's even more amazing, because it's such a small production, and to take the risk, when she knows she can sell her, her champagne at X price, no matter exactly. what, because it's champagne, right? Yeah. And also, not even that, I think it's, uh, you know, what I hadn't really realized until recently, I mean, you, you read it, but until you start to speak with some of the growers to really understand, I mean, the, the price, if, to sell your grapes, it's you know one of the best places to just grow fruit and sell fruit. I mean, yeah. you basically have unchecked, you grow high yields, you get like seven euros a kilo for your fruit, which is huge. Um, I mean, you have to take a lot of financial sacrifice and risk just to make your own wine. I think, mm. I mean, and not only with the time it takes to produce a bottle and then release it. I mean, these are really kind of like the martyrs and, and kind of heroes for me of like, I think that's part of what started to fuel my obsession with grower champagne was just not only um, the, for me, the quality and the value and interest and kind of the stories behind the wines, but the actual perseverance and principled approach and the, 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 the dedication you have to have just to create it as opposed to saying, yeah, but I could make six figures as a grower selling my grapes and yeah. just compromising the integrity of the vineyard and maximizing my profits. Yeah, and that's kind of this. add-on story to that. So I was in Champagne last week and visiting a couple growers um, one of which is probably actually one of the larger grower producers, Gimonet. Um, but still, I mean, they're, you know, they are a grower, grower champagne producer. And they, in all their vineyards, they basically use muscle selection. So, you know, they take cuttings from their best vines and they replant them um, as it goes. And there's in a really good um, allegory or, you know, a story about, you know, the next generation. And it says, you know, when we do a muscle selection cutting, we do it, we plant it. It takes you know three years to produce any fruit, um, and then they they start making some champagne from it. You know, then they they're gonna, they're going to age it for whatever period of time. Blah blah blah. So basically, from the day they, they select the vine they want to uh, use as a cutting, it takes 15 years yeah. to actually taste what that vine will produce. Yeah. 
That's like, you know, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that is like bonkers long time for, uh, you know, an investment, as it were, um, into what they do. And I think that's the thing that's so impressive. Yeah, that's 10% <coughs> as old as Canada. So just uh, <laughs> put it into my context. Uh, 150-year-old, uh, Canada just did their uh, 150th birthday as like, a, obviously, I mean, the continent and uh, First Nations peoples of Canada have been there a lot longer than 150 years. But um, um, I always, it's just a really sobering, contextual thing for me to think about coming from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. It's like 15 years to taste it, that's like 10% well, as I long mean, as I think it's always any. funny, like, you know, okay, a lot of us, um, except for Peter, come from the New World, right? And like, <laughs> you know, we, you got like... Scotland's kind of new world. I love that. sort of true. In an old world kind of way. The, uh, you know, the, the concept of old vines in the New World is like, yeah, these, these are 30 years old. <laughs> a friend of mine makes a phenomenal Riesling in the Okanagan Valley, and it's bottled as old vines Riesling, and it's like, you know... 35, yeah. maybe 40 year old vines now. <laughs> it's really good wine. It's just, it's, uh, people are like, oh wow, old vines. You start thinking like it was like 90 year old. Like, no, 35. Yeah. Like, 1980. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Peter, can you tell us about the wine you brought tonight? Yeah, so this is uh, Fred Savart's Expression Rose Brut Nature from 2012. Um, I completely fell in love with this wine when I first tried it. 100% um, Pinot Noir from Echo A3, uh, small UD. Um, it's zero grams. Polita, so no sugar at all, although I, I'm, it's got so much residual sugar in it anyway, it's, it's pretty intense. Um, and I've had it a number of times, and every single time it has this incredible way of gripping you. It's beautifully elegant, yet intense. It's got all the, all of the things I love about, about grower champagne, um, and especially so young. It's a 2012, so it's, it's still fresh and young, but, uh, but has so much going for it. It's a, it's a cracking wine. Had another interesting conversation actually in uh, Champagne, um, again with uh, Didier Gimenez about you know the crown caps, right? And everyone, well, most people use use crown caps um, in the in the, in the aging period, right? And there's no reason you couldn't use it um, once you sell it. Well, we, we except that it's, except that it's not allowed. It's not allowed. <laughs> I tell you what, we had we had a we had a horizontal of 82s and 79s at the at the Champagne Week, um, and they were all disgorged onto crown caps, and they were. Mind blowing. Oh, were you there? No. Oh, no. God, it was incredible. Well, did he? It was said he's so fresh. Yeah, he said he did lots of tests um, yeah. with cork versus crown cap in you know long term um, after it's been disgorged, um, but still putting a crown cap back on it. Was that with Jeff yeah. uh, No, no, it's with all the special club. Oh. Um, it was phenomenal. Uh, apart from the, apart from taking the crown caps off, which was hilarious. <laughs> it's like a, a beer on acid, just like pow, and these, these crown caps are hitting the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, that makes for a bigger, better party. Yeah, exactly. That's how men fart. <laughs> this wine just completely blew me away, and it's just got so much, so much tension, so much lovely salinity, just gripping, and yeah, 2012. Oh, it's incredible. Wow. It's just making me salivate just thinking about it. I mean, it's really exuberant, but it's framed by such lovely, like you say, salinity and minerality. It's got, yeah, it's really, it's kind of like, really kind of a contrast on the nose. It's kind of, it's got this really perfumed elegance, but then it's also got this power at the same yeah. time. I mean, it's really like... I haven't tasted it yet. I can't get over it. It's such an amazing nose. That's yeah, to me, to me, that, that nose is yeah. everything I love about about what the growers' movement is doing. This, this, this intense, intense fruit, that's, that salinity and the elegance, and it's all kind of pieced together. It's, it's fantastic. So tense on the palate. 
I mean, because it, it's really quite rich and expressive and, and um, on the nose, but then on the palate, it's just so precise. Mm. Um, and saline, as you say, but like the finish is really gripping. Yeah, it kind of sm smells very sweet on the nose, isn't mm. it? Like yeah, but not at all on no. the palate. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's pretty natural. Sure. Yeah, yeah, pretty natural. Sure. Um, this is going to be the last year we're gonna, he's going to be able to come along to these tastings then. Well, so actually, that was, that's a good segue into one of the things I wanted to ask you, because what do you think is, I think it's, it's always dangerous to get into the, the grower house debate. I mean, because I think it's, you know, it's obviously a much more complex tapestry in Champagne than, you know, growers versus houses, yeah. right? Yeah, true, I mean, true. a good example is uh, Alexander Philane, uh, Fabrice Gass's wines. He's, he only has a hectare and a half, and he works for Bollinger. I mean, he still works for Bollinger? He used to work for Bollinger? He still does, yeah. He still you know, does. I mean, it's essentially the working for one of the most iconic grand marks that allows him to subsidize and kind of do his little hobby project, right? I mean, it's not his sole income. And that's a good example of kind of the, um, you know, the it's not such a black and white competitive world. And even the growers would say themselves that it's not. No, but, but he's starting to buy grapes for overture, right? He's yeah, exactly. So he's, he's trying, he's, he's moving over to NM for, to, to do exactly that. And I think, I think we'll see a load of the, this generation doing exactly the same thing. I imagine Peter's will do the same thing. Baresh has done that. Yeah, Baresh has done it with his, with his, um, his NM brand, with, yeah. with his brother. Um, and I just, I, I just think it's, it's, it's the natural next step. You know, you look at Roderer, and they're the, they're the classic example. Roderer is, is the classic grower NM, where everything they produce, apart from their bog standard, you know, brute premiere, is their own grapes, or are their own mm -hmm. grapes. So, um, you know, and it's really fascinating when you go and speak to them about it, because you, you, for some reason, I still, even, even you know, having drunk so much of it, I still, I still just think of them as, a, you know, one of the big brands, but they are just a grower that has a, has a you know, a set amount of grapes that they buy for their, their brute premiere, and it's... Do you think that it's going to be more people, say, s changing how they grow their grapes and who they sell them to, as opposed to expand that production? Or do you, what do you see the role of it? What do you think it's going to be 30 years from now? What do you think the role will be of, say, people like Savart, and how will that transform the relationship between small vignerons and the Grand Marks? I think we're going through a very interesting stage right now where the consumer, you know, with Bubble Logs, you've got a fantastic you know, um, way to introduce people to grow champagnes. But the reality is it still represents such a tiny fraction yeah, of sales. Yes. Um, and I think the reality is it's, it's going to continue to be a tiny fraction of the sales. Um, and NMs and the marketing machines of the Vito Hennessy and, and the like will continue to, to push, you know, 95% of the sales. Um, What's really fascinating, I think we're going through right now, is the transition from the post-war babies coming through, uh, post-war babies um, dying off or handing over, and, and what we're experiencing now, which is a sudden boom in a different expression of, of what we see in Champagne. And that's really fascinating, but I, don't, I honestly don't think it's going to change much in the way of, of what we see delivered on the shelves. I think it'll just be a phase which we, as a four, and hopefully a few others who, who watch this, <laughs> we'll, 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 uh, we'll, we'll take on and, and realise that you can get incredible products, amazing ones, if you can find it. I wanted to make the parallel between Henri Jaillet and Cro Parent too, and you know, the great growers now. Whereas, how much is the terroir? We actually celebrate the terroir, or is it these people are really just quite special yeah. 
both. I mean, or, you know, midwives of their terroir. I think great wine is always both. Yeah, I think I think great wine is always both. And I think I, I think you know this is a prime example. Eco is not a celebrated village in Champagne. I, I I think it has become a lot more celebrated, obviously, with the, with the likes of wines like this and 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 many others from 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 around that area. But I I think I think more of the uh, status of Champagne has become about the individuals. Yeah, than, than, than anything else. I think, you, you I think um, grower champagne is a lot like um, restaurants like Noma or El Bui or, you know, the top 50 restaurants of the world where only a certain amount of people in this world know that world. But there's majority of people are still eating at Pizza Express and, you know, those are the normal... Yeah. The, the world will always be like that, I think. But that being said, I mean... Um, you know, the, th- the three of us here who work in the trade, um, I think it's you, Peter. Um, you, know, you support our trade. <laughs> support our trade. <laughs> we appreciate your patronage. You, you, know, you know more than us, but anyways. Um, you know, it's like, okay, we have individual restaurants and wine shops, um, but we're all passionate about growing champagnes, and we're, and, and we're not the only ones. And okay, London, you might say, is a bit of a bubble in the UK, but nonetheless, um, there's a hell of a lot more growing champagne being sold to people now. Um, than there was five years ago. But it's it's funny. so I hope that does make start making. But well, I think what what Sandy said is very true. But then the, your bubble dogs is the kind of the the counter movement to that. Whereas you create a cool environment for people to come and have a great meal and experience, and they just happen to be drinking great growers supporting great growers. I mean, they don't need to know anything about like what we've obsessed about with it, but they're still supporting that. And I f- that's kind of what I found with retail at the Grower Champagne Month is I said, if we can just get these wines in front of people, they'll taste them, they'll like them, they buy them. They don't need to know that, you know, everything about um, with the grower or that person, but they can still support it without having to buy into the whole tapestry, I guess. Right? No, I, I agree with that, but one of the major issues we've got and going on from, from what you're saying there is, is you, you just can't get this wine. No, yeah. You know, and that's and 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 that's the troubling balance between all of these is that you know this is this this is a single barrel, I think, a single barrel. So you know, four hundred odd yeah, bottles yeah. or so. Um, it it's just it's such a it's such tiny productions, and you we can get excited about it. You can probably you know get a case of six in your shop. You know, and you sell it to your favorite clients because that's what you want to do because you want to get them to back in the shop and, and they love it. And then you, they come back to you the next week and they can't get it. So they, they disengage from the, from the process because so it's disappointing. And, and Yeah, that's true. But I think now we're in a really great era where there's, you know, that can segue into the next producer. There's so many great people to engage with and, and you know, yeah. there's a, with the vintage variation and different, you know, different <laughs> albums coming out each year from each artist, right? So, um, you know, it, hopefully it's more of a journey. And what I love about the grower champagnes is people who drink grower champagnes are generally, they're appreciating it in the same way we appreciate other wines, right? You know, whereas if we're gifting, um, we're gifting grand, some Grand Marquis, and this is a bit of a generalization, I, 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 I know that, but when most people are buying champagne, they're not buying it as a wine um, in the UK necessarily, or they're not consuming it as their daily wine, whereas the rate of consumption with you know, these wines, we're always looking for the next, the next one to try. So I think we consume them more regularly than people who are having I mean, maybe a bottle of Bollinger. To, to me, like, maybe one of the problems with the grower champagne movement is, you know, like um, certain movements in, the, in, in wine, the regular wine, you know, things become, certain producers become very cult and sought after. And then everyone wants those, those handful of producers. 
even though there's a whole breadth of great growers out there yeah. that are just not really well known. Yeah. Um, but everyone is so obsessed with like, I have to have Solos, I have to have uh, Prevost, I have to have what, whoever. Um, and that you, you know, and so and then it's fuel fighting and then you know, there's not enough around to go around and then, then maybe some of the other growers kind of get forgotten a little bit. Yeah, I, yeah. I sort of boycotted Solos on my list now. <laughs> Because I think we just can't afford it. <laughs> yeah, well, one you can't afford it, and then you feel like you're like you're like trying to sell yourself to get some. Like you like it's the hardest thing to get, and then you put it on the list because you buy it so expensive. You have to mark it up, and all of a sudden it's the most expensive thing on your list. But then next to it are people like Yulis Colon or Chantal mm. Taille, who's who's wine, who's trained under him, and and you know just as good, but yeah, you know, yeah. like a, an eighth of the price. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, it's just a progression, evolution of, of anything. New people, you know, old people go out, new people come in. and You know, um, one of the things I think is so amazing about champagne, well, I mean, grower champagnes or, you know, grand bars, whatever, any champagne, is just so much goes into the, the making of champagne. I mean, the growing of the grapes, of course, but then... Uh, and there's so many different ways that you can you can make a champagne basically, mm. and it's and each way has a unique signifier um, on the wine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So Derek, tell us what you brought. So I brought my uh, um, I brought all the 2002 Hubert uh, Paulet Cuvée Rileus. Um, I've been working with this wine for about I don't know five years, and I just learned how to pronounce the name of the cuvee. <laughs> sure, that's right. Yeah. It's so Rileus is the name of the cuvee. Um, I'm from Saskatchewan, I can't not pronounce that S, so I've been calling it Rieslius 2002 for the entire time I've worked with it. So it's the Cuvée Rieslius, which is derived from the old name of Rilly, in Rilly La Montagne, where the estate is, which is Rieslius. So you can understand maybe my confusion <laughs> or the correct pronunciation of the wine. Could you go through that all again? Rieslius? Rieslius? The release is, a, I, th I think it's kind of like 57% between Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, um, and then the rest Chardonnay. But it's his, it's his, it's his top cuvee, it's uh, Fudra Age, and this is quite recently released. It's like 13 years on the lease. Um, Discord's in like late 15, I think it was. So. Does he do several discussions? Yeah, yeah, he's, I don't know how much he has of this wine. It's kind of like sitting, like a, a, I don't know, I just keep buying too much of it. Because it's so good, and um, I'm afraid it's going to be gone. Because I mean, O2, obviously. I mean, like it's kind of hard to make a bad, bad wine in O2, and yeah. I just think this wine is stunning, impeccable value. This is kind of the inspiration for Grower Champagne Month, to be honest. I was, I uh, a friend of mine imports these wines, and I drank them in Italy. I I worked with them in Canada, and then I was looking for them to bring them into the shops in in, in the UK, and and I couldn't believe that they weren't in the UK. So I, I asked my my friend who imports them. I said, you know, who's importing his wines? He said nobody. And I said, oh my God, we have to get these in. So we started working with him and a couple other producers, uh, Vernier Fanier and uh, Michel Arnoux, that we started buying direct. And that was kind of the inspiration for us to do our first kind of small-scale grower champagne month last year. Was I said, you know, I love Olivier's wines. I think they're really exciting. And he's a really um, soft-spoken, quiet guy. So it was really, uh, really felt a good passion to be an ambassador for his wines in the UK. And we thought, let's do a festival. Let's get up, you know, let's launch our new champagne range. Because I always thought, for a long time, um, I used to work at Hedonism, a really amazing um, trophy room of champagnes in terms of like um, old vintage Grand Mark wines and really just trophy upon trophy. But um, 
as a passionate grower champagne lover, I was always left wanting for more of, uh, of what we had in that selection and you can't have, have everything. So when I went with the good wine shop, I was really passionate to, to, to the owner. I said, Marcus, I really want us to, there wasn't really much going on in retail, to be honest, with grower champagne in the last few years. So we thought, let's, what, what better way to launch these producers, or especially Hubert Pelé, who hadn't been in the UK before, than by launching a new retail selection and cracking open Prevost and, and um, every other uh, great grower that already had a bit of reputation and put the release next to it and say, look, this wine belongs in, at, on this table. Maybe a slight tangential thought, but um, going back to a bit about the future of the, you know, Grow Champagnes and stuff, and I, mean, I was just thinking about how what's so cool about Grow Champagnes is the like, passion they inspire. I think, I mean, that's clear on all of us here. Um, and you know, that's the kind of thing that um, helps to sell wine, obviously, but to get people, other people, um, interested. And the fact that you know you and Cynthia, you're bringing in grower champagnes that are you know, maybe, you know not already here, um, and, and it's just um, you know I our place you know like I said we're not specialists in champagne we we love it and we we do it um, we've always been you know just a wine bar and we kind of do a lot of natural wines natural wines can be a bit more controversial than say grower champagnes but they but what is interesting in comparison is that they inspire a lot of passion. Um, and and that you know whether you like it or not, um, that passion has you know translated into you know I think uh, an awareness, and I, and so I think the same thing will happen. It is happening in Gros Champagnes, and it's just you know you hope that 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 passion kind of like then there's maybe more people who come into you know vineyards who come into wanting to make uh, take over their family's domain or whatever and want to make more their own champagnes, and then it kind of builds on itself. I don't know if that's true, will happen or not, but uh, so David, do you want to tell us a little bit about the champagne you brought tonight? Absolutely. So I brought uh, another very tiny uh, grower producer called uh, Marie-Noël Ledru. Um, she's based in Abonne, um, which is, I think, you know, it's considered one of the great uh, villages in Champagne, especially for Pinot Noir. Um, and, I mean, she really is, you know, micro negos hands-on. Um, you know, like the history is um, she took over in the 80s from her, her parents and... She, you know, started making the champagnes, and back in the day, I think they had anywhere from between seven to ten hectares. It kind of varies by who you speak to, but um, you know, through uh, some, shall we say, family disagreements, uh, those whatever how many hectares went down to pretty much under two now. Um, so you know, she really is a tiny producer, um, like Corton, like Corton, and you know, her champagnes have become. Um, how was that, Cynthia? Nicely done. Thank you. Very, <laughs> very sophisticated fart. <laughs> um, Aristocratic, even. What I think is really amazing about her champagnes is they really um, encapsulate um, this this combination of both power and finesse. Um, and I don't know if it's something to do with being a fe female winemaker, um, but there is a real elegance um, as well to her champagnes, even though they have that, that, that body and power to them. And so this is a 2002 vintage, which again is, a, as you said, quite a tasty vintage. I mean, I think 99% of uh, people who buy champagne would never yeah. even think to decant a champagne. Uh, but in fact, it actually, I would say this this, this should be yeah. this should be decanted. Yeah, I mean, it's like, this is really quite closed, um, and you know, it's it's got kind of crazy. Like, why are you gonna pour? You're gonna lose the bubbles yeah. or whatever. But you know, it really can make a big difference. And it would make a huge difference for that because it, for for me, the 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 
the, the first note you grasp on the nose is is the fact that it's aged, and you get that mm. little little bit of yeah. age, and 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 decanting just it just wipes that away, just wipes it, and, and you start afresh almost. It's, it's just starting to lift. I mean, this is definitely one that I would decant. So I think this is interesting. Um, the puller use they use barrels, right? You said. Yeah, but he's not using. He's not using new barrels. He's, I mean, and as most of the growers, I guess probably we should talk about tasting. He's he's using some barrel for the oxid, oxidative uh, effect on the wine. But, um, but yeah, there's. Can you remember whether they're large barrels or not? I think he's got. A, I mean, he he has some. He has Fudras, Fudras and then he also yeah. has some kind of some smaller barrels that he does. Um, I think it's a mix of both. I mean, you say they. I mean, it's literally like Olivier. I mean, he's it's like he's not like a. He's a proper kind of like one man band and like a couple employees. Uh, I think it was, I had a chat with Peter and he's like, the Champenois love their secrets. And um, he does a lot of, um, he does a lot with Pinot Meunier. And that's one of the things I really like about his wines is that um, um, he's another one of these great growers that is also making amazingly unique wines from Pinot Meunier. And we've got Brochet and we've got, uh, um, um, well, Benoit de Houx, Prevost. I mean, this, some of my favorite champagnes right now are just, Pinot Meunier or Pinot Meunier dominant wines. And Le Mont Benoit is like 60% Meunier, I think, yeah, from, yeah, from Brochet. And it's yeah, just it's stunning wine. Uh, <coughs> I, you can't get enough of it. Um, and so one of the, during the tasting, one of the, one, of the, one of the people was like, you know, asked this question. He said, you know, you do so much great with Meunier. Have you thought about doing a 100% Pinot Meunier blend, a 100% Pinot Meunier release? He's like, yeah, I have one. It's in bottle. It's going to be released in a year or two, and we're like, that's how I found out about this amazing new 100% Pinot Meunier and 100% Pinot Noir 04 that he's just sitting on and gonna release. I'm like, oh, amazing, when is it? And so there I am asking, oh, so when's it gonna come out? When can, how much can I get for an allocation kind of a thing? But it was uh, um, just, you know, had that question not come up, I don't know that it, he would have mentioned to me, oh, by the way, I have a new cuvee coming. It's so much of the champagne was like that, it's hilarious. You walk around and you're like, you know, this, I was with uh, with another producer um, just yesterday and he, he was like, yeah, we, we, we made this Chardonnay back in 1990 and, uh, and my father kept on making it the whole way through, but, you know, he never really needed to push the wine, so he never sold them. So they've got multiple vintages of Chardonnay all the way up, and then they decided to release the 07, which they released, which was fantastic. But a load of other vintages just not made. No, not, not, uh, not, not put released. on, yeah, just, not released. Just, just, just sitting there. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> For me, obviously the wine in the glass has to be inspiring, but mm. I find these people just really yeah. fascinating and inspiring yeah, as well, right? That's the best part of um, going, the best part of champagne is getting to know the people behind this, behind that, behind this. Like you, you look at this wine, but I know Fred, and it just makes me giggle when I drink this because I know Fred, you know? And, and you drink this, and you're like, gosh, she's good. Damn it, what can I get more? <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I, uh, originally got me interested in grower champagne was the obvious immediate value relative to some of the Grand Marc champagnes. Do you think that that's... Um, how crucial do you think that is, or do you think that's still relevant or important to grower champagne um, positioning in the marketplace now, or do you think... How do you think that connects? When you go out and you buy a glass of Moet Chandon for £12, I think 80% of the money goes to their marketing budget rather than supporting whatever it takes to make that wine. Um, with grower champagnes, I think you get you pay for what you get because they don't have a marketing team. It's usually the actual grower doing the marketing. 
and that's the reason why it sucks because <laughs> they're farmers and not not businessmen you know or or you know with we've got two 2002s on the table which is one of the most heralded vintages um, yeah. of the last what 20 years right i mean with uh, olivier Pollet, by virtue of the, i get to buy this wine because he doesn't have anybody out there selling his wine. It's him making the wine and kind of hanging out. And I'm yeah. sure like that on a, on a restaurant list is less than any of the 2002 vintage out there of, of Grand Marks. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. Both of these wines, I mean, I, I can't name, can you name a single Grand Mark Champagne 2002 less than 100 pounds other than Bessarat? No, and, like, and you, can probably, you can buy this for, I mean, retail, you know, somewhere between 50 to 100 pounds. Um, yes. And... It um, you know is on the equivalent level to me of something like a Boulanger RD almost, um, and that's yeah, going to yeah. be double, triple the price. Yeah, but exactly. um, all of these wines, I mean, these are all. I mean, objectively, I think these are all. You can say these are great, very good wine. I mean, these are. Um, for me, I think the grower champagnes, the great grower champagnes, not every grower champagne, obviously, but the the best examples of them, I think, are some of the most exciting wines in the world right now. Um, and then when you factor in the price of what is the of the greatest examples of a wine a region's wines and their price relative to say Burgundy or any other region in France, it's a fraction. I mean, the great wines of the world, these all of these are well under hundred pounds a bottle, you know. And you know, Savart's some of these cuvées, these producers all have wines around forty dollars, forty pounds a bottle. Sorry. I don't want Canadian dollars. It's like eight hundred Canadian dollars. <laughs> something. And it's and it's much more interesting. I mean, you you pay. You know, I don't even know how much Moët Chenot Imperial costs on the shelves now, like thirty, thirty-five pounds, or not. And you, you pay that much money, and you get the same wine year after year after year. Mm. Like nothing changes. Like to me, that's so boring. Well, you can pay you know thirty pounds and get something different, and you get to taste of vintage, you get to taste of terroir, you get to taste. You know the, the, the people behind it. Yeah, the life of that mm. person in that year. They might be having a baby that year. It's stressful. You know, you get to taste everything. All of these producers, Uber Palais, his his entry. We're talking about his entry wines are you know same price as kind of Veuve Clicquot. Um, but I think it's much more interesting, and I, I've become so fascinated with ownership of wines and where do the profits go. And for me, that was how when I had to start choosing. We only have so much space on the shelf, and I had to I eventually just weeded out so many. Grand Marks, it's just because, look, at the end of the day, do I want the money that we spend on these wines to go pad a shareholder's dividends? Yeah. Or do we want it to go help put the kid through school? Or, you know, whatever that person's family is, it's helping actually support a person that has a shared set of values with yeah. us and I think our customers. And I mean, there's Grosch something that makes you feel good about that, I think. Grower Champagnes are artisanal wines. Um, and that's it. They're real you know, people. They're real people, yeah. I think we should cheers. Yeah, cheers. Absolutely. Yeah, cheers, guys. Thanks for cheers. coming. Thanks cheers. for Thanks to uh, you guys. Thanks to Wilton's uh, for, for hosting us. It's been a, a great space, great hospitality, and uh, great, great chats. And great wines, mm. most importantly. Great wines. Yes, thank you. Here, here. We can keep drinking. Can we? We, we certainly can. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our first episode of Bring Your Own. Follow us on social media at BYO Podcast. If you like the episode, please spread the word with your wine-loving friends. Cheers. <laughs>